Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California, now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert and another storm is raging in this long, long winter of wild, wild weather. Snow in the mountains, floods in the valleys, one of those winters to remember. Makes me think of especially wild winters in the mountains and deserts of the southwest and years past. Like the El Nino winters of the early 80s, 1982 through 83. The most devastating storms in a century... On the West Coast, still nothing quite like it. Bridges and roads and houses washed away in the mud and the blood. Entire civic piers broke apart to monster surf and through the concrete pilings at the beach towns beyond. In spite, take that, the angry sea. It was when I developed the strange and ultimately inaccurate idea that the Mojave Desert was very, very cold in the winters. Because that winter was the first I'd spent a lot of time out there, out here, bumping around in my old International Scout. Getting lost in those beautiful days before GPS and car navigation systems. Climbing mountains and blue jeans soaked through with snow melt. What a time. There were other good winters, too. About a dozen years ago, the Mojave got covered in deep snow that lasted for weeks. Especially the Antelope Valley and the foothills of Phelan on the north side of the Angeles Crest Forest. Snowed in for a week straight. It was fantastic. I wore my snowshoes to walk the dog for hours every day. Sometimes he would disappear. An entire good-sized bird dog, and then I'd see his head poke back up like a pocket gopher. And that was in May. Merry month of May, but no green buds were showing. When spring finally arrived, though, sometime in June, well, we had the biggest crop of invasive weeds this desert had seen in a century. Waste-high mustard, enough ragweed to kill anybody with an allergy from here to Tulsa. I did what I always did when the weeds got high. Up and moved. 
to a house with less weeds. It's a crazy thing out here, the way people deliberately scrape their property, usually by attaching whatever junk they can find to the back of a quad or a pickup or maybe even a little tractor sometimes. drag that old metal box springs or whatever all around. While the vehicle sinks ever deeper into the muck and the poor old Joshua trees remaining, if there are any, are left on this barren half acre of six inch deep tire tracks and the dried mud. This, friends, is how you start a commercial weed farm if you read the brochure wrong and did not realize the only weed crop that's viable is marijuana. All the stuff people do not want on their property, well, that's what comes up in spades when you scrape off the top of the desert. Mr. Gallant can have five acres that looks like a picture postcard with every lovely variety of blooming cactus and green yucca and tall creosote dotted with yellow flowers and hummingbirds dancing through the breeze and antelope ground squirrels doing their acrobatics up the side of the choya. While next door, Mr. Goofus has ragweed and mustard up to his drawers and he's wearing an oxygen mask and has an IV drip of Benadryl. Because he killed off the top layer of the desert, which naturally protects from all those noxious weeds. Most of them, anyway. So this year, if your little bit of desert is producing a bumper crop of allergens, it's best just to pack up one night and get out of there. The Instagram grifters from San Diego are already planning to turn your place into an Airbnb with some asinine name like Little Debbie's Desert Shack at $2.75 a night. So really, it doesn't matter. Let the bachelorette party from La Jolla enjoy the allergens. Well, they've all got health insurance. But if you're stuck with the place, you have to suffer a little pain. A couple of years, really, and you have to do a lot of hand-pulling of the weeds and learn to tell a new creosote bush and a baby yucca tree from the usual stuff. But it gets easier. And in a couple of years' time, maybe three or four or seven, depending on circumstances, you will be looking at an acre or two of something more or less acceptable and not completely covered in weeds every spring till you die of allergies. 
And with the speed at which what's left of the open desert is being fenced off and marked with no trespassing signs, it may be the only bit of desert you're allowed to stand on without waiting in line at the ticket booth for the national park. One trick I learned a long time ago was to always carry a pair of pliers. To pull the cactus spines from your dog's foot or your child's head. And also to help those no trespassing signs get off those wire fences coming up everywhere so quick you'd think there was an explosion in cattle raising. Around Yucca Valley in Joshua Tree. The pliers with the little wire cutter part at the top, those are the best. Five dollars from the used tool store on the highway. Sometimes I'm reunited with my own tools that way. I say this as a warning to you people putting up fences everywhere, making it impossible to simply walk around the desert like people have done for the past 12,000 years or so. You are not making friends by cutting off old horse trails and dirt roads and footpaths. We see you, as the social media scolds like to say. I learned my rules from that song we used to sing in grade school, an official American folk song. Especially that verse they always left off towards the end there. The part Woody Guthrie meant the most. I roamed and rambled and I followed my footsteps to the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts. And all around me a voice was sounding. This land was made for you and me. As I went walking, I saw a sign there. And on the sign, it said no trespassing. But on the other side, it didn't say nothing. That sign was made for you and me.
closest I have come to seeing God in the desert so far was on Highway 395 south of Lone Pine, California, uh, December dusk and the Sierra Nevada shadow, the year of 911. I was making good time in my old Grand Cherokee, the Cadillac of Jeeps, bought used with the advance on my first book. The first time I'd had wheels in five years. There's nothing so enormous and beautiful as the eastern Sierra in winter's fading light. On that most beautiful highway in America. In that purple dusk, I saw a jittery light on the horizon due north. We were somewhere around the Highway 190 turn off to Death Valley. Alongside the mostly dry Owens Lake. I've never figured out exactly where this happened, though I still make that drive a couple of times a year and I always keep my eyes open. The size of the light was changing, and it would not stay put on the horizon. My passenger and I watched the size of the light change, watched how it would not stay put on the horizon. stretch of divided highway with those jagged piles of black lava rock in the median. We wondered what it might be, this strange light, a radio tower, a low-flying plane. Right then it transformed from a distant light, a curiosity, into this enormous manta ray, something or other, hovering over the sand and brush. I was transfixed, barely aware I was still driving 75 miles per hour. Big solid lights on each corner and a jerky spotlight beam from its belly. My passenger was yelling for me to pull over, pull over, but where? I spotted a dirt turnoff with its ranch barbed wire on either side and crossed over the iron bars of the roadway's cattle guard. The thing was still there, low in the darkening sky, much closer now, menacing and beautiful and hazy at the edges. I could not look away. The jeep lurched to a stop and I was out the door running toward it. There were no thoughts in my head beyond that's the kind of thing I always wanted to see. Is that why I'm seeing it? Is it real? What does real even mean? That's when it disappeared as I was barely out of the driver's seat staring into the void where something fantastic had just arrived from the ether. I had just arrived to put on this peculiar display. 
Now I was blinking into the deep, darkening sky with only a few high clouds still catching a faint glow of the departed daylight. Around one of those clouds, we saw a tiny point of brilliant light make a beautiful wide arc and vanish for good. Like Tinkerbell in the Disney movie logo. Was that it, too? The words ecstasy and awe have lost their real meanings in our dull and disenchanted world. Ecstasy is entrancement, astonishment, insanity. When you come face to face with the divine, with the gods, to stand in awe, in dread and veneration. I understood those meanings at the time, at that moment. They were the only words that approached the experience, and 22 years later, I consider it a life-changing moment still. Even if its meaning remains elusive and its context suspicious. Wilderness is the original meaning of desert. Like so many romantic words from the ancient world, the scientists have stolen it, reclassified it. They turned a term of mystery into a measurement of annual rainfall totals. It has been a very long time since scientists were poets. Used to be required. When Jesus commanded his disciples, get thee to a desert place and rest a while, annual average precipitation was not the point. It was a lack of people, of civilization. That's why you meditate in the wilderness. That's why you spend 40 days and 40 nights testing yourself against the wilds. In a battle of wits with the devil? In the Middle East of 2,000 years ago, wolves and bears and the majestic Asiatic lion ruled the mountains and forests of Palestine. To walk alone into the wilderness required a determined soul. Hermits, madmen, criminals on the run, holy fools, these were the solo travelers of the ancient desert. The good shepherd, that tireless hero of Jesus' parables, led his flock to summertime meadows and mountainside forage, far from cultivated lands. The staff, with its hooked in, crafted to pull the wandering sheep back on track. The rod, what cops call a billy club, to bash in the skull of any attacker. The outlaw and the prophet are wilderness dwellers by necessity, by definition. They live outside the law, outside the bounds of civilization. 
the wildlands are home for those who cannot follow the rules of man. Some 70 years ago, an aerospace worker named Frank Antone Martin began to question his Cold War job. A roamer since his orphan days in Ohio, Martin made his way west, laboring in the silver mines, reading Shakespeare and the Bible by firelight in the hobo camps where he often bedded down. The life of a factory employee in working-class Inglewood, California, did not speak to his soul, not like those melodious psalms and sonnets did in the desert night. Assembling bomber planes for the Douglas Aircraft Company was not the way. From concrete and rebar, Martin crafted an enormous Christ in his driveway. He hoped that Grand Canyon National Park would mount it over the Colorado River, North America's version of Christ the Redeemer. But there were no takers for this crude statue. Los Angeles newspapers named it the Unwanted Christ. Only a desert mystic like Pastor Eddie Garver could see the beauty or at least the potential notoriety of the statue. He brought the ten-foot-tall savior to his country gospel church on five acres of homestead desert hillside in Yucca Valley, California. A week before Easter in 1951, the statue journeyed from Inglewood to the Mojave High Desert strapped to a flatbed truck and dragged up the slope, its holy fingers breaking off against the rocks and the brush. Pastor Garver was delighted with the new arrival and the crowds and the media attention and the increase in donations when the plate was passed around. He offered the sculptor the whole hillside of sand and Joshua trees for a statuary garden, which Martin tended with his deep dedication to world peace, a world without the bomber planes he'd been building for the Pentagon's endless wars. Desert Christ Park is still there off a side road in Yucca Valley, and Martin is buried in 29 Palms hour down Highway 62. The UFO is the religious vision of the technological age. Or it was. We don't know what it has been replaced by, but people are not seeing UFOs up close like they used to, that's for certain. Carl Jung recognized this more quickly than most, dedicating one of his last monographs to the mystery, Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the sky, first published in 1959. The origin of the Flying Saucer sighting is less important than its symbolism. At the dawn of our own meek space age, 
and with nuclear warfare threatening the entire planet, thousands of Americans saw incredible sights in the skies, spinning visions of brilliant color. To Dr. Young, these were the mandalas of Eastern religion. When the saucers hovered or landed, strange people could be found dressed like superheroes out of the comic books. Blue leotards, knee-high boots, flowing golden hair like Norse gods, they spoke of a new age of peace of time. Carl Jung knew the power of raw nature and pre-industrial magic better than any 20th century European scientist. His search for human meaning took him from Africa to India to the same landscape that lured J. Robert Oppenheimer and Georgia O'Keeffe. The ancient pueblos and enchanted wildlands of New Mexico. And here, as part of the counterculture zeitgeist, he found tourists. Conversation with Taos Pueblo elder Achoe Biano regarding the busy visitors who flocked to his ancient land. The whites always want something. They are always uneasy and restless, said the elder. Identified by his English name, Chief Mountain Lake, in Young's autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. I don't know what I saw two decades ago on the 395, and it hardly matters. I can't do anything about it. Whether it was a holographic projection by some secret military unit or space people from wherever they're from now, or an interdimensional entity, or whatever theory you can enjoy tonight on the internet if the power doesn't go out, What stayed with me in the years since was that sense of wonder, a lessening of cynicism sometimes, and an awareness of the wild possibilities within this life now and then. Living without any real-world acknowledgement of the supernatural, whether religious or folkloric or the usual combination of both, is a very new development for humanity. Barely a century out of our species, 300,000 years here on planet Earth. From Amboy to Zizek's and across the great Mojave wilderness and beyond, you've been listening to Desert Oracle Radio. We heard some soundscapes tonight by Red, Blue, Black, Silver. And I'm your host, Ken Lane. I'm stretched pretty thin, and this is the later stage of life for me, but... Oh, I'm out of time. I'm not gonna... I'm gonna skip this part. I'm gonna skip this whole part. Let's end on a high note, as Jesus said. We are coming up on six years of this program broadcast out of Joshua Tree. 
think about it. Good night from the voice of the desert.